Today I'm speaking with Jennifer Lal, and Jennifer, you are uh, are you the founder of the Center for Bioethics and Culture? I am, and it it is. Uh, I you've done some really impressive films, and I I enjoyed exploitation. Recently saw the Lost Boys and uh, Breeders was my most recent that I that I watched in preparation for this conversation, and they're fantastic films. I've learned so much from you. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to speak with you. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. We um, connected really briefly in a Twitter exchange recently, and it was there was this photo that that was going viral on on social media of a gay couple with a new baby and the they're posed in sort of this like very traditional looking mom just had a baby pose. And and so it really inflamed a lot of people. There were a lot of strong feelings about this, but there were two men and one of them is shirtless holding a newborn and the other, his partner is beaming over top of them. And they just have this very like happy family, but it's kind of jarring because where you expect to see the mother, you see a man. And this brought up a lot of feelings for a lot of people. And I, I was sent this photo by a friend and she said, what, what does this make you feel? And she was really upset about it too. And I, I sort of had that initial feeling at first. And then I, I, and then I had this like step back. We're mobbing these people. They're a family, they're individuals. We don't know much about them except for the the bones of the story. Mm-hmm. But, and I, I confess that I don't know very much about surrogacy, about the, the issue of surrogacy. And I, and you offered to come on and talk with me and and share some more information. One of the things that comes through in your films is that, or in, in some, maybe some of the interviews you've done is the phrase big fertility. Mm-hmm. And so this seems like there's the dividing line between people just living their little lives and maybe a big industry that's m- a, more concerning or has some predatory aspects. So I will stop talking and let you talk a little bit. Uh, I would love to hear more about surrogacy and big fertility. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, uh, for your listeners who maybe don't know me, in a previous life, I was a pediatric critical care nurse for a long, long time working in academic university hospitals. So um, obviously we saw the sickest of the sick and a lot of those babies were born through assisted reproductive technology. So that was always kind of on my radar. And Mm -hmm. then I went back to graduate school and I founded the Center for Bioethics and Culture and and kind of got... um, swept up in big fertility. And I, for one, am a big critic of medicine as it's proper, properly practiced, not pro- improperly practiced today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have big pharma, we have big trans medicine, you know, we all have a lot of skepticism after the COVID lockdowns and forced vaccinations. You know, people are overwhelmingly not signing up to be organ donors because there's a lot of fear and skepticism of medical ethics. And will I be rushed to death because they need my my organs? So we already have, unfortunately, a very robust um, area um, of criticism and skepticism in medicine. And that is not separate from big fertility, which is what I've named it. I actually have a film called Big Fertility. It's all about the money. Um, And I am a strong proponent of women's health, a strong proponent of maternal child health and maternal child bonding, because all those things are part of health of moms and babies bonding and healing and connecting. And my position is is against surrogacy. It's not against gay men having babies through surrogacy. I'm I'm as critical of heterosexual couples. Um, I think it's a it's a double criticism criticism though, because you saw my film Exploitation, and in the case of a same-sex male couple, the eggs almost always come from another woman, and then the womb comes from another woman. And that's a legal reason, because they don't want either one of those women to stake a claim and say, I'm the mother of the child, because then you get into these legal battles, and we've had a very prominent Supreme Court case in the state of California which was the first gestational surrogate, that's surrogacy where the woman's just providing her womb. Mm -hmm. Um, And the court ruled against her. She didn't want the rights of the child. She wanted the rights to visit the child and stay connected to the child and learn how, know how the child is doing. That was all she was wanting. Um, And the Supreme Court ruled against her because she's just the womb. 
you know, she has no claim to this child. But the dissenting justice um, opinion, which I've read, um, I thought was very profound because it said without this woman's contribution, you know, her whole body for mm -hmm. nine months, you know, this child would not exist. And so we can't just discount that. So that, you know, and when I was working at the University of California in San Francisco in the PEDS ICU, um, my, you know, my gay men friends um, always just referred to us as breeders. You know, the women were, I mean, it was joking. It was lighthearted. You know, I was never offended. Um, but, you know, they were just like, oh, yeah, you're the breeders. You know, we need you because you're the breeders. And so we, mm -hmm. we used that word um, and we got a little bit of pushback and in the, um, the film for using that in the title. But the tagline was, a subclass of women, question mark. You know, we weren't saying women are breeders. We were saying, do we really want to treat women like this? So I've interviewed countless surrogates who've had horrible experiences. I've read dozens of contracts that surrogates sign. I've published peer-reviewed research um, in the United States where we um, took women, gestational surrogate women, through our study, our survey, and have published that. And what we know is surrogate pregnancy is much higher risk than the woman's natural pregnancy. We know it's risky to women who sell their eggs, donate their eggs. So because of all those sort of things, and I see, you know, because this is an, um, on one hand, it's an ethical debate. It's a debate around what is the role of medicine. You know, we get upset when we see medicine doing things to transgender non-conforming youth that they have no medical need you know does it does did chloe cole really need to have her healthy breast cut off you know the same with the surrogate mother who's often a young mom herself does she need to do things that are risky and unnecessary with her body and oh by the way she's often generously compensated mm -hmm. i'll stop there <laughs> well yeah it brings up so many so many questions. I think that for me, when I think of surrogacy, I think of, I've known two women who have been surrogate mothers. One was a woman that was just a, a an acquaintance of mine. And I was, she had done it several times. And this was when I lived back in Texas. She was, uh, I think the parent of one of my kids friends and i thought it was really strange it just struck me as really strange that you would do this with your body and that you would go through pregnancy after pregnancy maybe two three pregnancies she was pregnant with a surrogate baby at the time uh, but i didn't really think much more of it it just seemed a little i was a little bit off put but i wasn't i i, I just didn't i guess i didn't have a real big moral issue it was more like pregnancy seems like such a serious thing like i've had I've had, I guess, four emergency surgeries in my life. They've been around fertility. I had a, a miscarriage where I hemorrhaged and I had to be rushed in for too much bleeding. I had an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured. Um, I had an ovary twist and had to have an emergency uh, oophorectomy. And I had uh, hemorrhaging after a pregnancy, 11 days after a pregnancy. So my own, I've got four healthy kids, four healthy pregnancies, but my own story with fertility has been kind of harrowing. <laughs> like all of my interactions with emergency medicine have been around my female reproductive system. Wow. And wow. so the idea of availing yourself of that or putting yourself through that, if you don't really have to, it just seems very significant. It doesn't seem like a trifling thing to mess with your reproductive system to me. So that was my impression when I met that first woman. The second one is actually a friend of mine who in her past, years before I knew her, was a surrogate for a gay couple. And I, I guess it just seemed like a nice thing that she did. So I had this picture in my mind of mostly this really organic process of people that know each other, doing a nice thing for each other. And there might be some compensation involved, but it's mostly like a a, like donation of love of yourself. But when I saw the film Breeders and I saw this infrastructure behind it, this like this big money-making enterprising system, it sort of changed my perspective. And hearing you talk about what an industry this is around the world, I, it, it really, I would love to maybe hear a little bit more about that because I think that I'm, I think my image of it was a little bit rosy, um, you know, silly pansy little <laughs> childish image of what is really quite a serious industry. 
Well, and that's why I always love having these conversations because I what I find is that most people they start their thinking of surrogacy because of a personal story. And they see this loving couple that otherwise couldn't have a child and this wonderful benevolent woman who's come in to help them. And, and that's where we sort of start thinking, um, which is not always the best way to start our thinking because we don't you know, understand all the, the processes or consequences that go in before that. And, you know, back to your own personal story of, of so many you know, um, reproductive problems that you had. I mean, we still, when you think of the United States being such a wealthy, developed nation, we have horrible maternal um, morbidity rates, maternal mortality rate. And when you double down on this with the, the complications that we know of surrogacy, and it's well-documented in other studies, not just our own research, that these are high-risk pregnancies. And you know, if you're in a high-risk pregnancy situation, the children that you're carrying or child that you're carrying baby is also compromised. And, and Gail, one of the women in, in the Breeders film, was being a surrogate for her gay brother and his partner um, to help them have a family. And she wasn't being compensated. She truly was doing what we call altruistic surrogacy. Um, and she and the twins that she carried for her brother almost died because in the medical literature, surrogate pregnancies, gestational surrogate pregnancies, where she's carrying a genetic baby from somebody else, um, not the, they call it traditional surrogacy when the surrogate is also the genetic mom, mm -hmm. which I don't like that phrase. Like when you think of the, the famous Mary Beth Whitehead baby M case, Mary Beth mm -hmm. Whitehead was carrying her own genetic baby that then she then sold for $10,000 to the Stearns. Um, but, uh, you know, in Gail's case, you know, she and the twins almost died because she had high rates of pre, very, very high preeclampsia, which is common in surrogate pregnancies. You mentioned that the when you were in um, neonatal uh, care as a nurse, you noticed that a lot of the babies that were in treatment were from some kind of they there was some kind of an intervention done in order to have that baby. And you also mentioned that surrogate pregnancies are higher risk. What what are the factors that contribute to that? Um, the factors are she's carrying a, a baby that's not hers. You know, think of what happens when you get a splinter in your finger. It's a foreign object. Mm. Think about organ donations. We don't, I just can't give you my kidney if you need one. I mean, we have to do all kinds of tissue matching and typing and, you know, are we compatible? Are you going to reject the organ? We you know, And even if you're a good match, you still have to take anti-rejection medication the rest of your life. So the minute you put um, e either, even, even women who aren't doing surrogacy, but women who use donor eggs, they're going to have a, that reaction as well. So they're going to be in a higher risk category of pregnancy because it's not their egg. It's not their embryo. So it's just that when you think of just natural conception, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, how can we help infertile bodies? And there's a lot of things that we can do to help women. And now men are different, you know, obviously a gay couple, they don't have eggs and they don't have a wound. But if you're just looking at the infertile woman, you know, there's a lot that we can do, but because big fertility is lucrative, you know, women who are struggling with conceiving are often just fast-tracked. It's like, it, there's so many parallels between gender. You know, they're fast-tracked to transition. They're fast-tracked to the reproductive endocrinologist. Well, you have to go see the IVF doctor. You have to go see that. And we know now, because we've been at this since 1978 with the birth of Louise Brown, the first test tube baby, that just IVF babies in general are, are showing higher rates of problems. So back in my days at UCSF, most of the babies we were seeing were just babies that were created through IVF, you know, in vitro fertilization, assisted reproductive technology, not necessarily a surrogate baby that was born of surrogacy, not necessarily a baby born of egg donation, could have been, but we just know all of this um, big fertility. <laughs> Um, and when we made the film Breeders, we intentionally, and, and the audiences don't pick up on this, but we intentionally interviewed four different surrogate women to tell the story around how this is always debated, whether it's debated legislatively or just debated amongst ourselves. Um, so we interviewed surrogates that weren't being compensated. We interviewed um, 
surrogates that were traditional surrogates. If you remember Tanya in the film, you know, Tanya, it was her own egg, mm -hmm. but she was having a baby for a, a gay couple using what I can't remember one of their sperm um, and gave birth to a child. So, and she also wasn't compensated. We interviewed compensated surrogates. You know, we interviewed people who did it for family members, you know, for, for strangers. Cause a lot of times people recognize, oh, it could be an exploitative industry, so we'll regulate it. And that's that you get into that with the prostitution and sex work debate. Well, let's just regulate it, you know, because it's going to it's going to be there anyway. And so I am an abolitionist, um, but it's an abolitionist approach because of my concerns with maternal child health and well-being. Mm -hmm. It seems like a fine ethical line to me. And maybe maybe you can go into this a little bit and it, between uh, uh a woman who's pregnant and doesn't want to keep her baby and a couple or another person coming in and, and helping her to carry that, please keep your baby. We hear that story in the pro-life movement. Please keep your baby. We'll take care of you and we'll take the baby once it's born rather than having an abortion. What's the difference between that and intentionally getting pregnant and carrying that baby to term for someone who does the same thing? Just so I'm understanding, you're asking me what's different than a woman who's in an unwanted pregnancy mm -hmm. versus a, a couple who can't conceive going to a woman saying, help us have a baby. Exactly. Like ethically, from a from a legal standpoint, if you don't have an agency involved and you don't have third parties involved, what's the what's the legal ethical difference between those two scenarios? Well, there's a couple of things is one, the woman who's just in finds herself for whatever reason in a situation of an unwanted pregnancy, there was no big fertility that got her pregnant, mm -hmm. you know, whether she had a one night stand or whether she got pregnant with the boyfriend, she's no longer left or, you know, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. There's a million reasons why women find themselves in situations, but you know, she got pregnant just naturally and has decided, you know, I, mm -hmm. I can't raise this child. I'm willing to surrender. I hate that word, surrender the child to adoption. <laughs> I never know what kind of language to use when you're, you know, giving a yeah. person away. Um, uh, unlike, and well, and then another difference is, so like in California, if you're a surrogate in California, you waive your maternal rights before you even are pregnant. So before an embryo has even been transferred into you, you've legally waived and severed your maternal rights. In, in adoption, that's not the case. And it varies from state to state. And I'm not an expert on adoption law across the 50 states, but that you don't sever your maternal rights until well after that child is born and delivered because you might change your mind. Mm -hmm. You might see that baby and go, oh, I can't do it. Or, or you still might be able to do it. Or you might sign away your, uh, your maternal rights, but be in an open adoption you know, and have some kind of arrangement with the people who are going to raise your child. So those those are distinctions. There's no money involved in in um, in adoption. You know, there, you don't pay that mother for the baby she's given mm -hmm. and you pay the surrogate and people go, well, we're not paying her for the baby. We're paying her for the nine months pregnancy, the work she's doing. And I read the contracts, the contract, the money is attached to the baby. Hmm. It doesn't ever say you can keep the baby. The baby, it says you, you'll, you'll get this much at the signing of the contract and you'll get this much at this benchmark and then you'll get this, but, and then at the end, when you give the baby, then you get the rest of it, you know? So it's, it's, you know, it's, the, it's disingenuous language. So I think those are some of the, the biggest issues, um, legally, financially, and just the medical aspect, you know, big fertility is involved in surrogacy. It's not involved in uh, an unwed pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gosh, uh, the, you drew a parallel between this and the gender issue and then going back to sex work as well. And I can see these things are all very tricky areas to, to regulate because you're dealing with people's choice in how they use their own body, but you're also dealing with compensation and other incentives that are not natural incentives. So you, even back to sex work and pornography, would these people do this if there wasn't some compensation? And oftentimes, no, they wouldn't be be doing this. Um, how do you have a sense of how to conceptualize all of this legally? Is there a way to regulate or crack down on these activities from a legal standpoint or or is it just ethics? Um, well, yes, you can. I mean, when you look at most of Europe, surrogacy is illegal in Europe. Mm -hmm. Overwhelming. I mean, I'm going to 
Italy in April to speak and in May to speak and two big separate conferences because Prime Minister Maloney, surrogacy, all surrogacy is illegal in Italy, but Italians are allowed to fly to California or Canada. Oh. Or so they can come here and hire a surrogate and have a baby and go back to Italy. She's closing that loophole. So I'm told March next month, Italians will be prohibited from traveling outside the United States, uh, outside of Italy to go to other countries to hire surrogates. Um, you know, France has had surrogacy illegal since, you know, it was a concept. Um, it, and it's tied to their language around slavery. Because, you know, I always say, read a surrogate contract execute, you know, executed in the state of California and tell me how this woman isn't a slave for nine months. Everything is controlled. And if she disobeys or she does something wrong, she's a breach of contract. Um, so, I mean, I think it can be done. And back to your point about money, I mean, I was very involved in the fight in New York State um, because from when Mario Cuomo was the governor, um, way before, who was the, who was is the, it, uh, um, is it Andrew, Andrew Cuomo? Yeah, Andrew. So, uh -huh. So Mario Cuomo was the governor when Louise and um, when um, Mary Beth Whitehead case, which was a New Jersey case, came about. And at that point, he he formed a task force and it did a very deep dive study. The task force said there this cannot be distinguished from the buying and selling of children. And so the law of the land under his governorship was that altruistic surrogacy was legal. So women could do it, but they couldn't be paid because they were concerned about the buying and selling of children. Now, his son came, you know, on, on the scene, and this was during the COVID lockdown. And the big argument, Senator Brad Hoyleman, who's a gay man, married to a man, came twice to California to buy eggs and rent wombs in California, was crying in New York. Why do we have to go to California? Why can't we stay in New York? Women aren't lining up to help us for free because it was legal in New York City, mm. but you couldn't be paid. Mm. Um, so to me, I don't see how, and, and the law that eventually passed, so now women can be paid in the state of New York to be surrogates. And that was like, I think at the, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't even find the bill anymore because it was passed some, it was passed during COVID. It was like 66 pages long because they tried to imagine every single problem every single angle that might go wrong and how can we protect all the stakeholders and i always say we've had many women in the united states who have died as complications of surrogate pregnancies you can't legislate those health risks away you know why why can't we drink and drive because we might kill ourselves you know i'm 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 a free spirit i don't like a heavy-handed government government approach on me. But when it comes to health, why are doctors asking otherwise healthy women who have no medical need to take these drugs, to undergo any of these procedures, to take on these risks um, for money? What, where, where does that involve, you know, having a place in medicine? And that's very much prevalent in the trans debate. You know, these physicians who are recommending things that this person has no medical need, they might have a mental health, psychological need, mm -hmm but they don't need to be medicalized and surgicalized, you know, with their bodies and drugs and surgeries mm -hmm. um, while doctors get rich. I mean, some of, you know, this is out there. Some of the richest, richest doctors are fertility doctors. They're, you know, NYU, the head of the fertility agency at NYU makes more than the provost. You know, they bring in a lot of money. Columbia University, their fertility business at Columbia funds the whole entire OBGYN department. It's like their football team. You know, you can't touch wow. it. It's so lucrative. <clears throat> wow. Yeah, it just, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of the phrase, first do no harm, and I'm wondering what happened to that. Yeah, but we get wrapped around her body, her choice. Yeah freedom, autonomy. We're all adults. We enter into these kind of co contract, contractual agreements, um, but they're very uneven, unequal. You know, I'd like to see a surrogate contract that says if the surrogate dies, you know, her family is compensated $10 million. Mm -hmm. Big fertility. Well, how? Who's going to pay that? Mm -hmm. You know, I have uh, contracts in my file cabinet over here. If a surrogate lose, I mean, they they put a price tag on every single part of your 
fertile body. You'll appreciate that. If you lose your fallopian tube, we will pay you $2,500. If you lose your uterus as a result of the pregnancy, you will get $5,000. If you lose, you know, an ovary, you know, it's... <laughs> wow. It's amazing to try to put money to these things, to monetize these things. This is, um, we had a conversation the other day for a solid ground live stream um, with Dr. Brett Alderman, and we were talking about pornography. And one of the things that came up in that conversation is the idea of consent and how in terms of, of our current culture's attitude towards sex positivity, it seems like anything goes as long as you're consenting. And that even goes as far as being hurt, being being tortured, S&M stuff, being degraded, these things like we have this idea that you can consent to anything. And now we have this in Canada, we see the the movement of the maid, the consenting to euthanasia. And, and it, I just wonder what this all seems like it comes back to medical ethics. All of this seems like it comes back to medical ethics. Absolutely. I have uh, no tolerance um, for a medical doctor looking somebody in the eye, knowing that this person has no medical need for anything I'm about to ask them to do, mm-hmm. knowing that what I'm about to ask them to do is very risky. And and I'm also paying them to do this. Um, that's not medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I just it, it really it grieves me mm-hmm. um, because I care deeply about the medical profession. I mean, I, I was part of it for many, many years. Um, and I, I take do no harm. And, you know, it's it's like, how how do we not abuse people in clinical trials, you know, and experiment on people? And this is experimentation on people. It's also experimentation on these children that are yet to be born, because we know now that we've been doing assisted reproductive technologies for long enough, we have, you know, good enough sample sizes and good enough data that, you know, it's not all roses for the children that are created through these technologies either. Um, what so, are some of the things you see with IVF babies? Um, higher rates of cancers, mm-hmm. uh, genetic abnormalities, um, especially like imprinting disorders in the whole space. We, we're just starting to learn epigenetics, the whole epigenetics and what turns on and off genes and the signaling. Um, and so we're seeing some, you know, some of those imprinting like uh, Beckwith-Wedeman syndrome, cancers, you know, there's some speculation about autism, but I, you know, that's, to me, that's a little um, dicier, but, you know, there, and also because a lot of IVF babies um, and a lot of IVF babies that are either born of multiples, you know, because a lot of people have multiples, um, you know, they're premature. So they're just having the natural problems that babies born premature have, you know, low birth weights, failure to thrive, you know, some some um, just learning disabilities or, you know, playing catch up as a result of being um, born premature. But and, you know, um, part of informed consent. Yeah. Even if it is, sometimes there's that desperation. Mm-hmm. You want that baby so bad. Um, and it's even though America isn't impoverished like the third world countries and a lot of the third world countries have closed this down, the commercial surrogacy business, um, because they've seen their, you know, really impoverished women harmed and babies left that were born with you know disabilities at the the commissioning couple, you know, left behind because they didn't want a disabled baby. But, um, you know, you can, this whole choice, if you take the money out of it, overwhelmingly women are going to do this. And in the United States, in our, own, in our own research, we actually looked at financial demographics. And even though we don't have the poverty that third world countries have here, it's clearly women in the lower tax tiers based on, you know, the IRS uh, standards of, of tax care. And most of the women that we interviewed in our research were partnered or married to men that had like GED high school, maybe an AA degree. So it's lower educated, lower income, mm-hmm. you know, people that are doing it. It's, it's heavily, my sons in the military and military wives are heavily targeted to mm-hmm. be Well, I can really see how it would be very tempting for a young mom who is uh, stressed financially to think that I could get $20,000 for, and I could still do all of my normal tasks. All I have to do is hit a few extra doctor's appointments and keep living my life the way it is. And our family is going to get this giant bonus. Yeah. See how that would be really tempting. 
Yeah. And in the film, Big Fertility, we it's one woman's story in that film, but she did three different surrogacies. One was a couple in France, a gay couple in France, because it's illegal in France. One was a heterosexual couple in Spain. And then one was a U.S. couple. And she, they, you know, she dropped out of high school, you know, to take care of her mom, who was battling cancer, who eventually did die. But she was able to keep her day job and make the surrogacy money. So it wasn't just like, you know, and, you know, she was, I want to say she was working at a Sonic or something. It was, you know, mm. not a highly paid job, but she was able to keep that job on top of the surrogacy compensation. And surrogates are, are paid additional $5,000 if they're willing to carry twins or if they're willing to carry triplets, it's an extra 10,000. They usually get 5,000 extra for each extra baby. Um, so she did two twin pregnancies, which made she meant she got more and back to your friend or the woman you knew that did multiple surrogacies if you're a proven surrogate you you are heavily recruited to do it again and you're offered more money because you know it's all that disassociation not my body i'm just the easy bake oven you know you separate from your body you're proven you're you're not going to be ornery you're not going to want to keep the baby you're not going to give them grief you know, you do a good job. So we're going to pay, we're going to reward you and pay you more to do it again. Wow. So it's like, you're a, you're a low stress, low risk, um, baby carrier for us. Yeah. And then when they age out, which is another similarity in prostitution, when they age out, they go to often go to work for the agencies recruiting other women. Wow. So what is the, what is the age range of surrogates? Well, it's, it's usually not a, a numerical age. It's usually based on how many pregnancies. Oh, okay. So there's a limit. Yeah. And, and most of the, and they call them either intended parents or commissioning parents. Um, they're not going to want women that are in their forties because we just know women in their forties, you're going to have a higher risk pregnancy, just one because of your age. Mm -hmm. So twenties <clears> and thirties and under a certain number of pregnancies. Yeah. Usually it's, I've seen um, some ads, I, you know, I lurk on all these sites. Sometimes it's no more than six pregnancies. Oh. Because the more pregnancies you have. Six. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that might include your own children. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But when you think about surrogates often, I mean, I've, I've interviewed surrogates that have done, you know, three pregnancies that were twins. Oh my gosh. It was three pregnancies, but it was six babies. You know, I mean, your body can only take so much. Um, and we've had two surrogate deaths in California. Um, and, one was a first-time surrogate, and one was a second-time surrogate. And the, the sad thing about the second-time surrogate, which is often common, the intended parents she had the first baby for came back to her and said, oh, it was so good. We had such a great experience. Will you do it again? And she did, and she died. And can you just imagine? Oh, you know, it's gut-wrenching. Every time you look at your baby, you know that, you know, this husband, these children lost their mom so that you could have that system. Yeah, it, it just, I guess I come back to the idea of how stunning it is that you could sell this part of your life because it is so full of risk. And I feel like every woman, you know, for every mother that has beautiful, healthy children, every few moms has a story of some kind of miscarriage or something that happened around childbirth that was really scary. There's so much risk involved in this part of our lives yeah. and so many variables that the idea that you could put price tags like $5,000 on an extra baby, it's just, it, I'm kind of stunned by this. Yeah, but they, because they know it's extra risk. Yeah. Um, and I, I heard you also speak about transhumanism and these artificial wombs, the idea of womb implantation. Or it, This sounds like sci-fi. Is there, can you, can you talk a little bit about this? Well, there's a whole, uh, yes, there's a lot of work being done. They're already trying to make, and they've already made um, in mice, they're trying to make synthetic eggs. Wow, synthetic, synthetic eggs. Synthetic sperm. Wow. Then make synthetic embryos. Um, you know, they've already made, with mice, they've taken the skin cells from men. So eventually gay men won't need women, right? Because they will take their skin cells, they will reprogram them back to become egg so they can make their own egg from their own skin cells then they have their sperm and then maybe they'll have a uterine transplant or we'll have these you know synthetic uteruses so um there's a great book written by i don't like this man 
sorry if he's listening, Hank Greeley is a law professor at um, Stanford. He wrote it maybe 10 years ago called The End of Sex. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Gattaca. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, the quest is the perfect baby, a perfect child. And, you know, Hank Greeley says, you know, pretty soon sex will just be for, you know, fun. It won't be for baby making at all. Because why would you want, like the famous line in Gattaca is why would you want to leave anything to mother nature? Why would you want to leave anything to chance? You know, we have enough imperfections built into us already. Why not go for them? So his argument is that all babies will be made in the lab. Um, and so we will just have this. And I actually think in my lifetime, I'm older than you, but I think in my lifetime, I will, I will actually see babies gestated in artificial uteruses. Because um, I think that technology is really forging long. Now, whether a man who's presenting as a woman will be able to have a uterine transplant transplanted into him um, and be able to gestate a baby and have a healthy life birth, I don't think that will ever happen. Just like I don't think we'll ever become transhumanism, humanist. You know, I, I just think there's thresholds and barriers we'll never be able to crack without just destroying ourselves. Um, but I think we can, you know, synthesize and manufacture. What is the line that would that would demarcate transhumanism in your mind? Oh, um, God, I've never been asked that. I mean, like, how far do we have to go down? Yeah, to, yeah, to before that? we hit that. Because so far we're able to do is like, you know, the people that do like crazy implants to turn themselves into reptile looking people. Yeah, like, body modification. Yeah, or... Yeah, I, you know, I don't think we'll ever be able to um, cross into neural networks. You know, they talk about being able to just like network all of our brains together up in the cloud. And, mm. you know, you'll be able to walk into a conference room and everybody who's one of your contacts and LinkedIn, you know, you'll just have this thing flash up in front of your eye that will go, oh, that's Leslie Boyce. You know, she's up in the Pacific Northwest, married mm. to Benjamin. And, you know, that's Stella O'Malley with Jen Spen. I don't think we'll ever be able to do that. I don't think we'll ever. There's just... It's like when they when they mapped the human genome way back in the early 2000s, I think, when Francis Collins, you know, was part of that project. And they talked about all the junk DNA. You heard that phrase. Mm -hmm. And then they realized it wasn't really junk. It was the stuff we didn't really understand. It's just we don't understand what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of this, you know, I mean, we've I've hosted two conferences with transhumanism. You know, one of our speakers with Nick, Nick Bostrom, the founder of the World Transhumanist um, Association. Yeah, I talked with, you know, the real entropic people, the really far out ones that, you know, she assured me that this wouldn't be forced on us. And we would be like the Amish and Lancaster PA that didn't have buttons and didn't have cars and they could you know, live in their virtual worlds. Yeah, I don't I, I just think the human body is too complex. I mean, it's so complex that we reject a, a foreign embryo in our womb as women. You know? mm -hmm. Our body says no. Yeah. With what you said about IVF and all the, the things we're discovering about IVF babies, uh, it seems like a synthetic egg and a synthetic sperm. I don't know what you would make with that. I don't know what kind of a life someone would have coming from that. Yeah. Well, when you, there was a great article and I think the New Yorker a few months back now, and a lot of this is venture capital angel funding coming out of the Bay area. It's overwhelmingly f uh, funded by gay men who really don't want to have to be bothered with women. And I'm, I'm, I have a lot of gay men friends. I'm not gay men bashing at all, but I mean, that's who's really driving it because if we don't need the breeders <laughs> to have the children we want, hmm. um, we can just, you know, and all, and all by the way, get rich. I mean, if you just Google how big, big fertility is, it's multi, multi-billion dollar and it's a growth industry. It's just growing. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, in some way, it seems like the war of the sexes, like the women saying they don't need men and the men saying they don't need women. But mm -hmm. then how do you reproduce? Yeah. And well, so let's talk about a little bit of that, too, because there are a lot of single women by choice who just go to the sperm bank mm -hmm. and have children, you know, through donor number 749, you know, um, and then now we see the stories of, you know, this guy has 800 kids out there and this guy has 700 kids and they're going into Starbucks bathrooms and he masturbates over here and hands the sperm to her and she goes home and inseminates himself. When I was working in San Francisco, a lot of the female nurses would just get 
sperm samples from guys that we worked with and go home and inseminate themselves. I mean, yeah. it's this like, oh, the low tech tur turkey basers. Yeah, yeah. But it, it sort of gets back to you know what are our obligations and duties to children. You know, mm -hmm. is it just what I want and what I can buy and what I can afford and. Mm -hmm. yeah. so. And then there's the messy reality of families being all kinds of, I mean, there's divorce, there's death, there's reasons why someone might end up being raised in a less than optimal way, but to do it intentionally yeah, seems like it might open up a different, a different line of inquiry and some different yeah. ethical questions. Yeah. Yeah. It really does get back to the intentions and, and, um, one of our films is called Anonymous Father's Day, and it's just 100% interviews with what we call donor-conceived people, you know, here on this planet because of anon overwhelmingly anonymous donation. And we talk about how they found out. And, you know, because they all found out in different circles. You know, some are just told that from as early as, you know, like an adoption, you're told, mm -hmm. you know, let your child know early on every day how they came to be in your family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, some of them just sprung upon them. You know, one of the guys in the film, his, he calls him his bio dad. He was married to a female uh, fertility doctor in England and she used her husband as her um, sperm donor hmm. for three decades. So whenever she had to, oh my goodness! So she was inseminating other women with his her patients, her oh, female wow. patients. She was inseminating with her husband's sperm for three decades. So Barry, who's Canadian, lives in Canada now. I guess he was British because his dad and her. Um, he he recognizes, estimates that he has like twelve hundred. I mean, just kind of doing a rough calculation. Wow. Wow. How many half siblings could he have out there if this guy's for three decades the star donor? And he was aware that this was happening. He must have been. I mean, he must have been pr providing the genetic material. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. And the question is, how many of those women knew? Yeah, a yeah. lot of them aren't told. I mean, even um, Je Jenna Korea's got a great book. I always recommend it called "The Mother Machine." You know, just in the early days of fertility medicine, how many of us women were just guinea pigs, not even being told? You know, we we're we were you know under surgery, having you know reproductive and you know endoscopic surgery or laparoscopy, whatever, and they were just doing all kinds of other things while they're in there. And you know, women were oftentimes thinking that their husband's sperm was being used to inseminate them, and the doctor knew that the, the husband's sperm was you know was not good well, oh, you know so they were just replacing it oh my goodness and wow. wouldn't tell you. so all along this couple's thinking they're you know gave birth and are raising their own biological child only to find out you know much later that netflix had a great um uh movie like two years ago i think uh, of a physician i think he's in indiana who was doing that for years and years and the adult children, you know, because everybody's fascinated with genealogy and doing their 23andMe and um, some of the adult children discovered that they weren't genetically related to their father and started investigating and connecting. Mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. that was, I can't you remember. you remember the name of that? I that can't, interesting. I can't find it to you. Oh, okay. it, was, it was really well done. That was very well done. Yeah, yeah. I know a woman who has a story like that, that she found out she, her, her, uh, she was conceived artificially. And her father has at least hundreds of children because of something like that. He was a prolific sperm donor or some kind of a, I don't know what the, the story was. Yeah. It's really but fascinating. This is, this is all of big fertility and it's a whole reproductive tourism. I mean, you can buy and sell eggs and sperm through catalogs from all over, you know, the world. The, the U S is the largest provider of sperm to the world. Um, but that doesn't mean it's all American guys that are providing the sperm. It means the U.S. is in Denmark and in mm -hmm. Germany and, and the Chinese come to the U.S. because all of this is illegal in China and they love it because a baby born in the U.S. is a U.S. citizen. So they have a pathway to citizenship because they have a baby that was born in America. And, you know, it's just this whole, you know, tourism, you know, I mean, I've spoken at the United Nations three times on the global reproductive tourism trafficking business. Um, I've he I heard you speak about India in particular with women being asked to sign contracts that these women were illiterate, not able to understand what they were even being asked to do yeah. to enter into. And so I, you know, I start to picture like baby farms almost <laughs> like women who are just being completely enslaved in this way. 
They are. They're put in um, kind of like dormitories at a, you know, at a school. You know, they're removed from their families or removed from their community. Part of that's shame, you know, because they're doing this thing for somebody else or having a baby that they're selling. You know, so there's a little stigma around that. Um, and so they go and, and they live and part of it's control because we can know that she's eating properly. She's taking her prenatal vitamins you know, all that because we we've got a customer that's expecting, you know, a healthy pregnancy and healthy baby. Um, and of course, nobody cares about these women once they deliver. They don't care what their nutrition or their <laughs> their, their home life situation is. Um, but that's that's one of the many reasons why India closed their borders and and there's no more commercial surrogacy allowed in India. It's, you know, it, and it's only for, you know, whether you like the law or not, the law is it's only available for heterosexual couples there and they have to be married and they have to have um, a diagnosis of infertility. Hmm. So it's, you know, it's got, but you know, those are all regulatory things, you know, are you happy about that? You know, I don't mm -hmm. you know. Uh, when I was in law school, there was a case that I studied for a criminal law class where I think it was a California case. I don't remember the name of the case and I don't even remember how it turned out. But the the there was a man who killed his wife and she was pregnant. So he killed his wife and the unborn child. <laughs> And the reasoning, when you read the, the, the judge's reasoning, the arguments in the case, um, it, a lot of things hinged on whether or not this baby was, uh, was, was it a double, double homicide or was this just a homicide? Was the baby a, a full human who was also murdered? And the arguments were really interesting because if the baby is a full human who was also murdered then the baby is protected by law in a way that puts the woman that compromises the woman's um freedom in a pretty significantly and could that that could set a precedent that would and, and i think the judge even talked about regulating women putting them in uh under lock and key so that they don't smoke so they don't eat certain things during mm -hmm. pregnancy i mean it really changes the way that a woman is regulated by law if you see the baby as a as a human being prior to birth. But that was a really interesting window into some bioethical argumentation. Yeah. I don't know if you are familiar with that case. It, I, I am. And I remember his name, Scott, and I can't remember the last name because um, it, it, it actually took place close to where we live and where the body was found was close mm -hmm. to where we live. And I, I believe he's still in San Quentin, which is okay. close because um, he's, he's still in prison. Um, yeah, that was, I, and I'm 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 not a lawyer, so I don't remember reading the legal um, opinions on that case. But I do remember it was kind of a, a sticky rub because on one hand, you know, and I think part of the the argument, and maybe you you know better than I, was because this was clearly a case of a wanted child. It wasn't like she wanted mm -hmm. to terminate mm -hmm. the pregnancy. Yeah, she was pretty far along, I believe. Yeah, so it was you know the fact that you know. It would be different if she was on her way to Planned Parenthood to terminate the pregnancy, but she wasn't. She was mm -hmm. setting up a nursery and, you know, having baby showers and stuff. Uh, but it's it's all that control stuff. And, th and that is evident, you know, again, we, you know, when I um, work with my um, ragtag coalition of people, you know, I always tell people there's, I, I could figure out what's you're most passionate about and give you a, a story that would make you understand why surrogacy is bad. Hmm. You know, for a lot of feminists, it's these language in these contracts where she is enslaved. She's told what she can eat, what if she can wear perfume, if she can travel, if she can have intercourse or not have intercourse, and who she has to have. Does, does whoever she has intercourse with have to be HIV tested? I mean, it's you know, one woman's contract. Um, she waived her end of life decision making. To the intended parents so in wow. case late in the pregnancy she had some kind of a you know neurological trauma you know that left her in a coma who would decide if life support was pulled or maintained and it was attached to how viable the pregnancy would be you know wow. so literally um you know some people just get really upset about and undone about just the economic injustices you know because clearly kim kardashian isn't offering to be a surrogate for her hispanic you know, low-income housekeeper. You know, it's clear. I mean, we know who's doing it and who's who's buying and who's selling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those there, there's some people that are just really into health, and you know, why would we want to put these powerful 
hormones, fertility drugs that have links to cancer in mm -hmm. healthy women that have no reason to take these kind of medications. Mm -hmm. and, you know, some people have a strong um, affinity toward the rights and well-beings of children, not to be products, not to be bought and sold, you know, but to be welcomed into, you know, one of the sur surrogates, we, we asked two open-end questions um, when we did our research. It was, otherwise it was just this large survey of just the facts. Um, and one of the interesting, that's when just the magic happens when you just, you know, open up the floor and ask these questions. One of the surrogates was a surrogate for a very affluent, I believe it was a husband and wife physician couple in, in New York. And I can't remember if it was the husband or wife. I think it was the wife was like a neurosurgeon or neurologist, but that kind of a physician. And she had the surrogate come and live with her for two weeks so that the surrogate could nurse the baby. And then she would immediately hand the baby to the mother, the mother that was going to raise the baby. Um, because she understood because of her training in brain, internal mm -hmm. child bonding, how important that that was. And she thought in that two weeks, she could sort of maybe mitigate that trauma mm -hmm. by having that surrogate there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just think it's another double whammy for that surrogate, because again, you have to disassociate and, you know, you've had children. I'm assuming you've nursed your children. I've mm -hmm. nursed my children. Yeah. And just, I can't imagine just nursing a baby and then handing. Right. <laughs> I mean, I just, and, and, and for the baby too, who can't speak, you know, we know enough from adoption that there's trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nancy Verrier's book, The Primal Wound, um, talks about that in her, in her research and work in adoption. And I'm not anti-adoption, but we at least know that, that the, it, the possibility for that trauma in separating a birth mom and the, and the baby. Um, and so we, you know, we manage that in the child's mm -hmm. life as they grow up. And, you know, you just Google adoptees, they have high rates of suicide and drug addiction and um, because there is that primal wound trauma. Um, but we will always have a need for adoption. We'll always have orphans. We'll always have situations where children need to be placed in, in homes where they can be cared for. But we acknowledge that there are possible, possible problems um, and so that we can be aware and on, on alert for those and, and manage them as we they come up. You mentioned earlier that you don't like a lot of law, that you tend to be someone who prefers to see things be, uh, I, I guess, how did you say, kind of free-spirited. You don't want something over-regulated. And I feel the same way. And so it seems like it's a really interesting area to start to to navigate. But these these seem like... I, and I, I know it's almost hard to to use this argument in terms, but it seems spiritual. It seems like there's a spiritual, emotional thing that's being missed in this attempt to make human life into this very technical, rigid, legalistic and categorical thing. And we're missing something really important. Like you're talking about the bond between the mother and child, and you can try to parse that and quantify it with data, but it's something that sort of transcends data yeah um well let me say two things first i want to say you know again back to the trans debate i loved how florida decided to handle the trans debate and they they handled it through their medical professional societies not legislatively mm -hmm. so the medical professional societies and leor sapir wrote brilliantly about what they did they just said this is not what we're going to do this is not medicine we're not yeah. going to yeah. versus legislatively because the legislation just changes you know mm -hmm. somebody gets kicked out somebody wins elections somebody loses you know you're just constantly um battling so i don't think the legislatively thing now as far as um the spiritual um i mean it's it's a no-brainer you can just watch baby animals in the wild and you know they they know their mother um, they run to their mother. You know, the mother knows their babies. Uh, you know, is that intuition? Is that spiritual? Is it biological? It's probably everything. It's probably all of that. Um, and it, it, the same is true with human babies. You know, you, you see all those little cute videos where the baby's crying, crying, crying. And then, you know, if his mother picks him up. He's like, oh, my mommy, you know. I mean, Chloe Cole, when I interview her, she talks about, you know, that aha moment when she was in biology class and they were learning about the study with the monkeys where they put the little baby monkeys in these cages with like a wire, a wire baby that's, you know, monkey. That's the wire mother. Yeah. And then the one that's kind of got a little cloth around it and where they all gravitate toward the one that's got the cloth. And that was that moment that she went, I'll never be able to breastfeed my my babies. 
you know, I, I lost that, you know, in graduate school, I had to read Oliver O'Donovan, who I think he's an Anglican priest. I think he's Anglican. And he's got a great book on, um, called Begotten, Not Made. Um, you know, do we beget our children? Or do we make them? You know, are we, you know, are we manufacturing? You know, we went, we went from uh, procreation, create, you know, procreating to reproduction, which makes it sound like you're just running a mimeograph machine and making millions of copies. You're manufacturing. Um, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, you know, talks about the man molders and, you know, our final conquest will be we abolish ourselves. You know, that's a transhumanist. You know, we're going to try to, you know, Tower of Babel. You know, we're going to climb up and we, and, and I think the Old Testament, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but it's like, they're building that tower. And then the, in the, the the text, it says, and God looked down. So no matter how high up we can, you know, so is that hubris? Is that pride? Um, and I'm not a Luddite. I mean, you know, we're on Zoom. I got my microphones. I got my electric guitar here. <laughs> you got your guitar. Uh, I'm not anti-technology, but I'm also um, ex appreciate and respect caution and prudence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming back, circling back to the medical ethics, I like that what you said about Florida. I think that's the way to go is I, I, I keep thinking, you know, when you try to legislate, you're kind of over engineering something after the fact. And you talk about that 6,000, what was it a 6,000 page document where they're just, you know, or 600 or whatever it was. Yeah. And it's just this like massive line by line trying to over engineer something that just shouldn't have been in the first place. And so yeah. I wonder when are these, when are we going to see medical societies wake up and recognize that money <laughs> you can't consent to everything and and money isn't the end and first do no harm and where are the where are the doctors in all of this you know this is where i i'm, I'm really always a pretty hopeful and optimistic person but because there is so much money on the table for them, I don't see them walking away from it, um, which is why we don't see trans surgeons saying, ah, I'm done doing this. This is wrong. You know, they only stop it because they've gotten sued or their, you know, institution like Washington University has shut down the clinic or whatever. So I'm not hopeful. There's no sympathy for surrogates. There's no sympathy for egg donors that are harmed. I mean, I've gone to hearings and testified with them and brought them with me. And there's absolutely no sympathy because it's like, well, you were told you did it. You know, you signed the contract, you agreed, you took the money, you know, so there's not a lot of sympathy for what you would consider the victims. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, more sympathy, I think, for the victims of um, the trans debate, mainly because a lot of them are children or minors or were mentally ill and should have been, you know, offered you know good mental health um, care so i don't really know because i don't see the the physicians closing up shop uh i don't see people um stopping to hire surrogates i think if anything it's booming i mean once same-sex marriage was legalized in the united states then the floodgates opened for same-sex couples to engage in surrogacy and not that they couldn't have before but i think just having the legal structure of being married and then you know your more your family's more protected because you're legally recognized as a family mm -hmm. um uh, you know, I always just try to get to women, stop running your wombs and stop selling your eggs. You know, it's dangerous. It's harmful to you. Um, you know, can we work on policies that make it so women have economic opportunities that don't require them? Why do military wives overwhelmingly rent their wombs? Because they're, they're poor. Mm -hmm. You know, can we pay people better? Can we provide things for women so they can raise their family and pursue education, raise their family while still work. And, you know, what kind of opportunities can we give to women so they don't feel like I have, have to do this? Because we know if we take the money out of it, Leslie, we know if we take the money out of it, they're not doing this mm -hmm. just out of the goodness of their heart. Yes, they are kind people, but it's it, if you said, oh, but we can't pay you now, they'd be like, oh, I'm going to find something else to do. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think it's an economic issue that if we can solve that. But again, I don't see a lot of hope mm -hmm. um, for solve because women have been fighting for those kind of economic opportunities for a long, long time. So. Yeah. And I'm reminded of the experiment with a kid where you put something in front of them and tell them if they wait five minutes, they'll get something even better, but they, they can't often wait. It's like a developmental thing. You know, we're not, you, you got to 
weigh short-term benefit against long-term benefit. And when the short-term benefit is so big, like $20,000, and you think the, all the long-term risks are potential, no. it's a really tricky place to be as somebody who's in a disadvantaged position. So I- And it really colludes informed consent. Yeah. You know, when you when you know you're being told it's risky, but you know, I have mounting student loan debt. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take, it's like the smoker. I won't get lung cancer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the alcoholic who goes, well, just one more drink. It's not that bad. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to say no when there's a need or an impulse or something that's driving that. So that I think informed consent in the medical world has no business with money being on the table, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It really changes incentives. Well, uh, Jennifer, this is, been such a an, a fascinating conversation. It's a departure from the kind of usual conversations that I've been having on this channel. Most of what I've focused on is social justice ideology in psychology and education. So this is something that's a little bit different. And I, 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 my mind is open. I'm really interested. I want to learn more. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to get into these issues with me. Oh, I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Where can people, if you, uh, I'll put all the links that you've provided me into the description, but if you want to just say out loud where people can find you in case somebody's just listening. Yeah. Um, I really spend most of my time on Twitter. So you can find me at Jennifer Law on Twitter. And I highly recommend people go to our YouTube channel, the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network YouTube channel, because all our films are there for free viewing. So you could. That is amazing that they're provided for free. Well, thank you. I hope people will follow up. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you.